Okay, here we go. I don't know why there's a blank one there. Okay, one thing I forgot to mention last week that just struck me. When you read through this, you sh there's, there are a lot of little interesting things. I'll show you a couple today. Remember Ehud? I used uh, Terry's example to put the sword in Eglon's belly. When he, when he asked him to come and says, like, he says, I've got a message from God from you. And immediately when I read that, why didn't he use Yahweh, the, na the covenant name of God for that? Over, you know, uh, he's Elohim. He doesn't say Yahweh. He says Elohim has a message. And which really puzzled me because, you know, you're, you're making a point about Israel's God and you'd think he wanted to bring that home when you deliver it. And I don't know. One, you know, I looked around and one theory is that if you know, when he, this happens, he tells Eglon, I have a message from God from you. And Eglon stands up to get the message. And that's when he left hand puts the knife in. Uh, and it may have been that if he had said Yahweh, he wouldn't have known who that was and wouldn't have gotten up. That's one theory that's out there. But anyway, there's just little subtle things like this that are, are, are kind of interesting. Maybe not. <laughs> anyway, so that goes on. So we're going to go ahead and get into uh, De Deborah and Barak, uh, and then we'll get to talk about Gideon. But so same, the, the, the story over and over in Judges, you know, the Israelites... Uh, after Ehud died, they're hanging on pretty good while Ehud's alive. But then they do what's evil. God this time is going to sell them into the hands of King Jabin, who reigns in Hazor. This is a king. If you remember when we were back in Joshua, Jabin and Hazor were apparently wiped out. But here they show up again. And uh, if you weren't here then, uh, it, the theory that, that we that we proposed, I proposed, is that a lot of what you read in Joshua is hyperbolic, it's hyperbole, it's overstatement. So that when they say they wiped Hazor out and killed every man, woman, and child, it really just means they had a decisive victory. The other theory is that it could be that uh, Jabin or Yabin is a dynastic name that every king of Hazor was named Jabin, Jabin, whatever, and that this is, Hazor has been rebuilt now. So... Anyway, so we have Jabin, we have commander of the army of Sisera, okay? Uh, and the Israelites, you know, up here, they're, they're doing evil, but after they're under the hand of Yabin or Jabin for a while, they get pretty desperate. They call to God for help. And they mention, again, this uh, 900 chariots of iron, and he depressed Israel for 20 years. So now, all of a sudden, a lot of times we read the phrase that God raised up a judge, here we just kind of find Deborah already judging. We don't know anything about how she became a judge, why she became, you know, how did, how did this woman get to be the judge of Israel? And we'll talk about that a little later. But we just, we just read that she's judging Israel. She is married. Uh, and she would sit under the palm of Deborah. Uh, so, again, between Ramallah and Bethlehem, the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came up to her for judgment. So here's a woman who's highly respected, who's apparently making decisions for, for people, ruling in disputes. She's, she's really a leader. So she, God apparently goes through her, and she, so she calls Barak, Barak, however you want to pronounce it, and she tells him, said, the God of Israel commands you 
In other words, I've had a revelation from God. He wants you to go up on Mount Tabor. 10,000 men from the tribe of Naphtali and Zebulon. And God says, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Yabin's army, to meet you by the Wadi Kishon with his chariots and troops, and I will give him to your hand. So, she says, you're the general. I'm not going to be general. You're going to be the general. God's going to give you this victory. So Barak is okay, but on a condition. He said, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't, he says, I'm not going unless you go. And then Deborah gives him this really great, interesting response. And, and, and we're, be, we're being led down a path here. So she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory. Great state. You know, kind of, you're not, it's not going to be your glory here because God is going to sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And who do we read this and who, what do we think? Who's the woman going to be? Well, Deborah. Hey, yeah, she's, she's, she's the leader. And because he's not willing to go without her, we're all thinking Deborah's going to be the heroine. Deborah's going to get the credit for the battle. So she gets up, they go to, down with 10,000 warriors from Naphtali and Zebulon, and Deborah goes with him. Uh, the battle goes on. You know, they, get, they go down from Mount Tabor and attack. Sisera and his army, it's all go into a panic. Sisera uh, gets off his chariot, fle, flee, flees on foot, and the chariots, notice Barak, goes after the army. And so Sisera is all by himself. And he's, and he's hightailing it. He's on foot, probably, probably because he figured if he stayed in his chariot, they'd chase him down as king, but they wouldn't suspect a guy on foot of being the king. And in this day and age, at least from, if we read consistently in the, New in the Old Testament, the battle's not over until you've caught that king or the leader because he can always go back and reorganize, come back at you. So he snuck away. And I think most of you know this. We all know the story, I think. So he's, he's hoofing it, and he gets to this tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. And, and we read earlier how the Kenite, Heber, uh, Heber had taken his tents and, and located down here near, away from the rest of the Kenites. So here Jael, the wife, comes out. She meets Sisera and she says, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me and have no fear. It's okay, I've got you covered. So he goes into the tent. She puts a rug over him. She covers him. And he says, and he says, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. He's been on the run. He's thirsty. So she doesn't just open, give him water. She gets a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he says, stand at the entrance of the tent. And if anybody comes and asks you, is, is anyone here? Just say no. So Jael says, okay, you just, you just lie down there and take a nap. It's all going to be okay. I'm going to hide you. Don't worry. And then we have the, she takes a tent peg. And, you know, this is not a two-man pup tent. This is a big old tent, so they're probably big long stakes. Takes a tent peg and a hammer, and she went, went softly to him. She sneaks up. She takes that tent peg and a big hammer and literally nails him to the ground. She drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground. He was lying fast asleep from weariness, and he died. So now we see our man Barak comes up, and uh, you know, I, I love J.L. She's, she's kind of a gutsy woman. Are you looking for somebody? I'll show him to you. 
Show you the, and so you can imagine probably, you know, here's, here's Barack coming in. He's like, well, he's in there. You know, this is like a TV cop show. You know, everybody get your guns out. We're going to, you know, you cover the back. So they're probably all going in thinking they're going to find this guy and fight it out with him. And there he is, pegged to the ground. And uh, so, so who gets to, you know, so we have this wonderful little trick that's been played on us as readers that we're all thinking Deborah's going to be the, the, the person. And it's, and it's J.L. And this, this is a surprising passage. And, and it, these are, the, again, the things that really surprise me. First of all, how do we get a female judge? You know, think about the culture. You know, most women are staying there in the tent taking care of business like J.L. was. You know, it, I, again, I wish we had more about how Deborah came to be judging Israel. We're just presented with the fact that she's a judge. She's a married woman, which maybe makes it even, to me, more surprising. Now, don't, we don't know what her husband did, if he was a herder or whatever. But whatever reason, she's risen to prominence. God has, has raised her up. We don't have that phrase. But I can't believe that she got into such a position of prominence without God's being involved. So we have a female judge. And again, in this martial culture, this warring culture, of all, you know, how, do, how do we end up with a woman getting credit for, for a victory? Again, a, ver a surprising thing for any reader, especially readers back then. And then the other thing, remember, she's not a Jew. Hebrews a Kenite. So we have... The Kenites have been kind to Israel. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, the Kenites have been close to Israel. Father-in-law, yeah. Hobab or yeah, Hobab. Hobab, yeah. So they're, they've, always, they've, they've been kin folks, but technically, I, I, at least the way I, I try to read it, they're not a covenant people. They're not part of that uh, covenant of the Jews. So a, real, a story that's, that's kind of full of surprises. It kind of puts us, again, for, and just think of a reader, you know, now we're used to women doing amazing things. Back then, this is a surprising story. It was a story that put people off balance. And, and you know, in, a, in, a, in this land of Israel where we've got Israel repeatedly turning against God, God is going to use novel ways to bring them back. To me, it says there are times when God's going to go outside of what we expect He's going, to, he's going to use people that we would never dream of using. He uses a woman, he uses two women to get this victory. Uh, we have a, a, the next passage we're not talking, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about. It's Deborah's song. It's a poem to celebrate this victory, and it's sung in, uh, by both Deborah and Barack sing this song or write this poem. Well, and, and we'll go through a couple of things looking at the tribes and also. The praise for J.L. So uh, there's a, notice we have tribes called out here, the specific tribes who helped, Ephraim, Benjamin, Mahir. Mahir is the son of Manasseh, Zebulun, Issachar, uh, how they're faithful. Uh, and uh, I don't know how many of you know a lot about Hebrew poetry, but the, 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 everything that's important about Hebrew poetry for me is it rhymes ideas rather than sounds. So the look at the first two lines. It's a couplet. 
Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for him against the mighty. Saying the same thing in two different ways. Parallelism. And then from Ephraim they set out in the valley, following you Benjamin with their kin. And, you know, we'll see it somewhere in the later passages. But, all, you know, look for rhyming of ideas the same. And sometimes they'll be exact opposites. Respect. Now, turns out not everybody gets a, uh, a positive shout out. It says, among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of the heart. Why did you tarry among the sheep folds to hear the piping of the flocks? In other words, where was, Reuben, where was the tribe of Reuben? We sent word to you guys and you didn't show up. There were great searchings among the clans of Reuben, great searchings of the heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he abide with the ships? These are, and Asher sat still on the coast of the sea, settling down by his landings. In other words, we're going to get praise for the tribes who helped out and some, some negative about the folks who didn't come. Deborah and Barak are, are, are you know, giving credit where credit's due, but they're also kind of chastising the folks who weren't willing to pitch in and help. Uh, and then and we close out with Zebulun and Naphtali, people that scorned death. These are people who did come, and Naphtali on the heights of the field. So again, recognizing the tribes, condemning the ones who didn't. Here's just a quick map. The blue, is, the blue are the folks who showed up, again, assuming Mahir is Manasseh, and the, the pink are the folks who didn't show. So I don't know if that tells us a lot, but it's kind of interesting. Then finally, the, the last part, we have a real salute to Jael. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite, of twin-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water, and here, notice the parallelism, same thing. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She bought him curds in a lordly bowl. She put her hand to the tent peg, and her right hand the, the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera a blow. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Again, the parallelism there. And then finally, he sank, he fell. He lay still at her feet. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. And here, if you kind of look at it, it's kind of an, if you think again, rhyming of ideas, A, B, A, B, if we're teaching poetry. These two lines say the same thing. These two lines say the same thing. And do you notice anything about this that bothers you? He fell, whereas earlier he's lying on the ground and gets pounded. Songwriters have a little license, okay? If, you know, when, when you're writing a song, you, you know, your, 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 your purpose isn't to tell everything exactly how it happened. It's, it's a dramatic, you know, this is more, it's more dramatic that he sank and he fell. He, you know. So anyway, we, we grant the songwriters a little license. But this is one of the great, the great stories of Judges is, again, the, the bravery of J.L., the leadership of Deborah. And, 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 and don't sell Barak short. He, he, was willing to, he, he was willing to fight. He led the people. But he just wanted some assurance. And, it, and if you want to see more of that, let's look at this guy, at Gideon. You know, again, the Midian, now the Midianites are oppressing Israel. Uh, God sends out a prophet. You know, Led you up from Egypt, brought you out of the house of slavery, delivered you in the hand of the Egyptians and the hand of all who oppressed you. 
drove them out, gave you the land. He says, I am Jehovah your God. You shall not pay reference to the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have, given heed, have not given heed to my voice. The condemnation by God of Israel again. So here's old Gideon. And he, he's visited by an angel. And the angel says, The Lord Jehovah is with you, O mighty warrior. Now, what does Gideon answer? He says, But if the Lord's with us, why has this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us saving? Did he not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But the Lord has cast us off and given us the hand of Midian. And I mean, it's pretty, pretty bold to Gideon to hear talking to an angel. I'm not sure he knew it was an angel yet. He says, well, boy, if, if this is God being with us, I'd hate for him to be against us. You know, here, here we've been under the Midianites for all this time. You know, we've heard, we, we've heard these stories. You know, people tell us these stories, but I, I think Gideon's begin to wonder. Did all this really happen? You know, you know if, all, if, if God is this great, how come, what's happening? How's all this happening to us now? Yeah, and, and it's a very, you know, it's easy for us to get into that sort of mode, saying, you know, where's God's hand? You know, when, when, it's, when it's cancer, when it's a divorce, when it's the loss of a loved one. What's the time period between Deborah and... and uh, I'm trying to remember. It's, it says... It's, it's, it'll say somewhere how many, maybe as much as 20 years, I don't know. It says somewhere in the text, and I just didn't put it down here. But it, some time has gone by. So we forgot. Yeah. I mean, again, think, you know, things have gone bad. And again, remember, Egypt is a long way off. So, seven yeah, years. seven years. They were in the hands of Midian for seven years. So they've been under Midian for seven years. So it's been at least that long. The last verse of Judges 5 says the land had peace for 40 years. Okay. So 47? So 47 probably. So there were good times and now things have gotten bad. So anyway, when again, and you know, when you're in deep right now, it's hard to remember the good times, you know. Uh, you know what? What have you done for me lately? Things are bad. Things are bad, and, and and Gideon's obviously doubtful. He's he's distressed. It's been a whole generation. Yeah, yeah, a generation or more. So anyway, uh, and again, one of these little curious things. When we start off. It's the angel of the Lord appearing to him, but then in later discourse, it says the Lord turned to him, said, and the Lord said to him. What do you make of this? Uh, the way I see it, we're really just talking to say that when the angel speaks, it's the same as, as God himself speaking. This angel's been sent directly from God. But there are little, little tricks like that that are always kind of jump out at you. You don't see it as a theophany. Uh, it could, well, maybe, because let's go on. And we're going to see. I was going to say, uh, in verse 14, before we get away from it, mm -hmm. I think um, he was ticked. It, I'm, I'm going to read it in yeah. Frisbee language. Okay, the, Fris the Terry Frisbee translation. Says, the Lord turned to him and he said, Go in this your strength and deliver 
Israel, have I not said this to you? I, I think there's an anger there. It's almost like and, when, yeah, in the part of the when, angel when, and God. Yeah, on the part of the angel. Almost, it's like when um, Paul was appeared to. Yeah. I think that phrase that says yeah. "get up." Yeah, there's this phrase. Not a happy get up. <laughs> We're going to get up in a minute, actually. <laughs> so here's here's Gideon. He's uh, and again, Gideon says, "Okay." He says, you know, talk, talk is cheap. He says, give me a sign. And so he goes, we're told he brought gifts to the angel, and the gifts consist of a kid he's dressed out, uh, some unleavened cakes and some broth. And then here's our sign. The angel reaches with the tip of the staff that is in his hand, touches the meat, the unleavened bread, fire sprang up, consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel vanishes. Now, now getting to what Randall said, what, what did he see? Look at Gideon. He's immediately scared. He says, Help me, Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. This, this feeling that, that confronting God face to face was a fatal thing. Matter of fact, go to in Exodus 33. We see how God says, You cannot see my face. No one see me shall live. And Jacob says, I've seen God face to face, yet my life is preserved. You know, there's this idea that if anyone, if you saw God face to face, the experience would be such that you would not survive it, just to see the glory of God. But anyway, Gideon says, okay, it's the, it's the angel of the Lord, he, which for, for him is, seems to be equivalent to seeing God because he's worried that he's going to die because he's seeing this angel face to face. And again, the Lord said to him, peace be, do not fear, you shall not die. And so Gideon builds an altar that he calls the Lord is peace. And when Judges was written, that altar was still around. So here's, here's Gideon. He's been called on to, to serve. He uh, has been somewhat submissive. He's next told to go tear down an altar and an Asherah pole. Uh, he, he, he hesitates. He kind of backpedals on it, but they find me. He's convinced to do it. He does it, but... He's so afraid he goes and does it at night. And it's interesting to note here, who's he afraid of? Read it. What does it say? Family. Not only, not only the townspeople, but he's afraid of his own family. That kind of tells us how deep into idolatry Israel has is sunk. But it was his father's altar. Yeah, yeah. So he's, he's afraid, you know, you know, God's calling him to do something special that's going to threaten him. him you know, it's going to be tough to do. So you know, he, he goes ahead and does it. This is kind of a picture of what a lot of people think an Asherah pole. Asherah was a fertility goddess, might have looked like. And there's, turns out this is uh, actually somebody later on chopping an Asherah pole, but I thought I'd put it in there. So it destroys the altar, and, and the townspeople, sure enough, they say, bring out your son so that he may die, for he's pulled down the altar of Baal and cut down the sacred pole beside it. So, remember, he's afraid of his family, but his dad comes through. Here's Joash, his father. He says, would you contend for Baal? Will you defend his cause? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been pulled down. Kind of, that reminds you of any other passage? It kind of reminded me of the prophets of Baal, where it says, you know, let, let Baal 
call down fire. You know, call down fire. But anyway, Joash, stand, you know, the father stands up for the son. George, yes. This, this really is significant because not only does he tear down the altar to Baal, but it says to build a proper altar right. uh, to the Lord your God on top of this. No. So it's not just that he tore it down. Right, he, he built, he built an altar. built another one right. in honor of God. Good point. So Joshua, or Gideon, is kind of, kind of building up his courage as we go along, okay? So he's torn down the altar, he builds a new altar, and he gets a new name. He's called uh, Jerubbaal, said, let, which means he, you know, he contended against, against Baal. said, let Baal, or Baal contend against him because he pulled down his altar. So we now have a new name for Gideon. He's, he's, he's starting to assume a leadership role. And so we're getting ready to go to war. Uh, and he, he actually, again, calls out specific nations. Manasseh, Asher, Naphtali, and Zebulon are called to go. And they have this interesting phrase, I think. Uh, that step, and I, I, Sorry, I didn't put down the reference to this. You may be able to find it. It says, the Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon. Something changes about Gideon. You know, 634. 634, thank you. So... Something is going to be different about Gideon. And mine says literally clothed him. Clothed him. The Spirit of the Lord clothed him. So now, let's look at, you know, both, both instances where Gideon's been called, he's held back. And again, he's still a little nervous. He asks for a sign. And, and you know, he specifically, I think all of us remember this story. He says, okay, God, if, it's, this is, if you're really on my side, he said, I'm going to put a fleece out here. And when I come up in the morning, he said, I want the dew to have soaked that fleece and I want the dry around it, ground around it to all be dry. And he comes up and it's happened. <laughs> and then he says, well, just to be safe, <laughs> just, to, you know, just to be sure, tomorrow morning I'd like for the ground to be soaked with dew and the fleece to be dry. And he gets his sign. And we're ready to go to war. But God's not ready yet. Again, I think most of us remember this story. God says, you, you, you've got too big an army. He said, if, if you go out there with 32,000 men, you know, you're, I'm not going to get the credit. You're, you, know, you guys are going to say, we did it on our own. We don't need God. We're strong. So... Uh, I wonder, if, you know, we're going out for a big battle, and, and the, the message is anybody that's afraid can turn around now and leave. Which I'm guessing I would have probably been on the move. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like a pretty good deal. You know, I mean, he, he, you know, people are killed in battle all the time. You know, even if you win, there's going to be a lot of casualties. So, time to hit the road. Well, Again, he said, okay, we cut it down, 22,000 men leave. He said, well, we're down to 10,000, let's go to war. God says, well, still a pretty, pretty big group. So he says, okay, when you, you're going to go to the stream, and said, when the guys go down to drink, he said, some of them are just going to bend down and stick their head in the water. Put those to one side, and said, then the people who are going to put their hands down and bring up water and bring that to their mouth. And said, so you put those folks on the other side. So he does that, and there's 300 
that bent down and lapped and whatever 10,000 minus 300, 9,700 or whatever on the other side. And we send the 900,000 off. So now we're left with 300 men. George, is there any significance historically to the way they drank? Not that I found. Anybody, you know, I would have probably kept the guys who, <laughs> no, drinking down, lapping like a dog, I'd have probably got rid of those guys. But for whatever reason, they keep these folks. Now, so Gideon's on the, on the, on the brink of battle. It says there's, he ha there's a man telling a dream. You know, this, this is not, I actually said it shouldn't be Gideon's dream. It's somebody else's dream. There's a man telling a dream to his comrade. He said, I had a dream and ended a cake of barley bread, tumbled into the camp of Midian, came down, came to the tent, struck it so that it fell, it turned upside down, and the tent collapsed. This man says, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has given Midian and all the army. So we have a dream to tell us what's going to happen. And notice, notice, this is the Gideon that's clothed in the spirit. He says, get up. Here's our get up. And notice his use of past tense here. He doesn't say we're going to win. This Gideon that's clothed in the spirit, he says we've already won. And again, I'm glad I won one of those 300 guys. I I'm not sure I would have been the most eager troop. So he divides these 300 men, puts them in three companies, gives trumpets to all of them, and gives them empty jars with torches inside the jars, hit so the torches aren't seen. It says, look at me and do the same. When I come to the outskirts, do as I do. I'll blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me. You'll blow the trumpets around the whole camp and shout for the Lord and Gideon. So they came. Uh, notice they come at the, the beginning. They come right on watch change. So there's probably not, maybe, maybe confusion, we don't know. But when they set, they, the watch gets set, Guys are just settling down to do the watch. The trumpets get blown, the gar jars get broken, and all of a sudden, you know, all these Midianites look out. They hear trumpets, they see torches all around, and they hear this big yell, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So the, the men in the camp, they, get, they cry, they flee, they blow the trumpets. God sets, you know, every... Said, great phrase there said every man's sword against his fellow and against all the army and they tell us how far they fled uh, and, and uh, again Asher and Manasseh and Naphtali are called out and they go in pursuit of the Midianites so they've, they've routed the army the army's fleeing you don't want to let them get away so Gideon sends down word to Ephraim which this is in the plain of Jezreel which I'm sorry I didn't the plain of, you know, these are the, these are the folks involved. Here's the plain of Jezreel right in here. And here's Ephraim. So apparently they've routed the army. They're headed south. And Gideon doesn't want to get them away. So he sends word to the men of Ephraim. Come down against the Midianites. Seize the waters against them, the fords, where they're going to cross the river and across the Jordan. You know, I'm guessing probably there were, you know, limited places where they could ford. So that gives them a place to focus their, uh, they capture Capture the, the two captains, Oreb and Zeb. Uh, they kill, kill them both. 
and you know they pursue the Gibeonites, and you know they bring the head the heads of the two leaders to Gideon. But they are, you know you, you you know no no good deed goes unpunished, and the Ephraimites immediately are upset. They say, "What have you done to us that you do not call us? You know, why didn't we get on the main fight? <laughs> why are we just doing the mop up?" And and Gideon kind of placates them and says, look, you guys did the important stuff. You made sure nobody got away, and it's okay. So anyway, you, you know, there is, there, again, there's no pleasing everybody. So the battle is over. Gideon, uh, his army, and I'm assuming this is the 300 men, so we're not talking about a lot of people. They go to, to Succoth, and they ask, they say, we need to eat. We're, we've been fighting. We're worn out. So he said, look, th- these, these guys are out there with 15,000 men. Uh, you're not done yet. And they refuse to feed Gideon and his army. They go to Penuel. They get the same thing. So then we go on, and uh, I'm not going to, you can read this. It's, it's you know, kind of routine, but they capture Zeba and Zamuna. Uh, so they get, though, they're going to go back to Succoth. And interestingly enough, on his way back, uh, Gideon finds a person from Succoth, and he says, I want the names of all the, the city council, the mayor, all those folks. Give me their names. Take the names. So, in Judges 8, we see, he came to the people of Succoth. He said, Here, Zeba and Zalumna, excuse me, about whom you taunted me, saying, You already have your presence in the hands of Zeba and Zalumna, that we should give bread to your troops who are exhausted. So he took the elders of the city. So he's, he's, got, he's got his list of names. He rounds these folks up, took the thorns of the wilderness and briars with them. He trampled the people of Succoth. And he also broke down the Tower of Penuel and killed men in the city. This is a violent society. And, and these folks had, you know, I'm told that in the Middle East even today, the, the, the law of hospitality, you know, that you never reject someone who comes to your door that uh, you're, the, you'll always be fed, you'll always be treated with respect. And these, these folks at Succoth and at Peniel broke that fundamental law. And, and they paid dearly for it. And, you know, we, again, this is one of the things that troubles us about these books because we live in a society where warfare is not common. And when we do have war, uh, I hesitate to use the word civilized to apply to war ever, but it, it's generally fought where we don't involve civilians. We have sort of rules for how you do war. And this wasn't the case then. And, uh, and God, is, God deals with people in the society he finds them. And, and you know, if, if God had said, go into the land of Cana and just be nice to everybody, they've probably all been killed because this is a violent society. This is the way it worked, and God has to work with his people in that society. So that's, uh, okay, and, and, and then the final thing we're going to talk about today, uh, after he's done this, he takes uh, Zeba and Zamuna, and he says, what about the men you killed at Tabor? Tabor, remember we were on Mount Tabor at one time. They said, as you are, so were they, every one of them. They resembled the sons of a king. Well, they didn't just resemble the sons of a king. Gideon says, they were my brothers, 
the sons of my mother as the Lord lives. If you had saved them, I would not kill you. And this is, this is one, again, that we're, I'm, un, I'm uncomfortable with. He takes his oldest son and says, go kill him. But the boy did not draw his sword for he was afraid because he was still a boy. In other words, he's taking his, we don't know what that means, still a boy, but I guess it's pretty young. So uh, the, boy, the boy is afraid and, and won't kill him. So Ziba and Zemunas say, you come and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon proceeded to kill them both and took the crescents that are on the neck of their camels, which we'll run into later. But, you know, it's, it's again, I think it tells us something about that civilization that these two guys don't beg for mercy. They say, you know, you've got to do what you've got to do. Notice this phrase, for as the, as the man is, so is his strength. It's just an indication, I think, of that violent society. That if, if you're going to be a leader and you don't kill us, if, we, if we're left alive, we certainly won't respect you. Nobody else will. So it was a violent, brutal world that, that these folks lived in. Any comments on that? I mean, it's just, What's a crescent ornament? Uh, apparently, uh, I tried to look a little bit. It appears to have been some kind of yoke around the necks of the camels that they wore. I don't know if it was... Isn't the crescent the shape of the moon? Yeah, yeah. And isn't it interesting, it is interesting to me, anyway, in verse 24, they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, here, that's, this is what you're talking about. Yeah. So this, this is... Uh, two things before we, about this. First one, I didn't put it down here, but 22 and 23 is important. Because, you know, we're, we're getting ready to transition into the kingship. In 22 and 23, the people said, we want you to rule over us, and we want your sons to rule over us. The idea of setting up a hereditary dynasty. And Gideon rejects those. I think I got that right in 22. He says, no, I'm not going to rule over you, and my son's not going to rule over you. You know, we're going to keep with the system God has given us. And then we have, again, an uh, interesting thing. God takes Gideon, uh, says, give me the earrings. Again, the, apparently the Ishmaelites wore these earrings. And I think some of the verses I've skipped down here, they mention the, the crescents from the camels as well that they take. And they uh, take all this stuff, each you know, spread a garment, I, you know, took a big old robe out, and everybody threw an earring in. So that take, Gabriel or Gideon took it and uh, made an ephod, put it in his town of Oprah, Ophrah. And it says, and this, this confused me, and if somebody can explain it better, uh, uh, help me. But it says, all of Israel prostituted themselves to it there. It became a snare to Gideon and his family. So the fa land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. It almost, almost seems like God should take action here when they start worshiping prostituting themselves before this ephod. Anybody remember what an ephod was? We read about ephods all the time in the Old Testament. It was the deal the priest wore. Yeah. And so there's nothing wrong with an ephod, okay? But apparently it, it appears that, that Gideon somehow set this ephod up as an item, uh, object to be venerated or worshipped by the people. It says, Israel prostituted themselves to it there. 
In other words, they, they, they kind of made that ephod a thing of worship, it appears, the way I read it. But for whatever reason, uh, it became a snare to get in his family. Uh, you know, and that, again, the, that's an idea I think that goes on today. Things, things we revere can become that kind of snare, yes. Yeah. So, Grass platers. As, as I would read it, they saw that and they bowed themselves right. down to Gideon. Okay. Yep. And he became, a good point. became proud, so proud that yeah. it's him that did it rather than. Very good. Yeah. So it becomes a, a snare to him and his family. How does that become a snare whenever, you know, whenever that pride, you know, that, Power, pride. You know. So anyway, God overlooks it though. He's going to look at it for forty years in the rest of Gideon's life. Next week we'll uh, talk. We. I was telling Terry. I, I was rereading Abimelech. He's just such a rotten guy. We're not going to talk about him much. <laughs> he really, he really a rotten guy. And we'll get on and talk about Jephthah and maybe a little bit about Samson. We got two more weeks. Thank you very much for your comments and for having.